we're going to pick up on uh, first third of page three. Um, so right where it says um, musings on Yahweh's table, it's that third hash mark there. Um, the the disputation itself, the argument itself, uh, the charge, if you will, has been laid at the feet of the priests already, right? You have offered polluted offering, and they rightly went right to the right place and said, how have we polluted you, Lord? And he says, but you profane my name when you say that the Lord's table is polluted and its fruit that is, its food may be despised. And we spent uh, hurriedly the last little part of uh, last week's lesson talking about that, uh, how the offering really gets uh, changed, I think, here. Our, our perception of the offering gets changed here from that sin offering and that guilt offering to that offering of relationship with the Lord, the offering of communion with the Lord. And so I had mentioned that if you look around at the Yahweh's table in the scriptures, you're immediately going to get back to that table of showbread. It would be almost impossible for you to do a study of that like that um, through the scriptures and not, not start in that foundation of the table of showbread, which was primarily to hold the bread of the presence of the Lord. And, and you know, as always, the Lord with us, Emmanuel, if you will, um, is intended to be a superlative comfort to the people. N- nothing else matters. No, no other child, no other struggle, no other need, no other doubt is important any longer. I am with you. And uh, don't have it's not, it's not a Christmas lesson, so I'll leave that alone for now. But um, the the food offering itself uh, was was to be carried out perpetually, for one, right? Meaning the, the Lord was intending, intends to be with this. I say was, like it was past tense and no longer. The Lord has always intended to perpetually be with his people. And the table highlights the covenantal relationship that we have with God, um, or between God and his people, um, as Christ's, Yahweh, as Christ uh, is with us, right? It emphasizes his provision for his people, and it highlights the intimate fellowship that exists between God and his people. Um, We just finished a a study with um, Carrie on the feasts, and uh, thanks to Angela, we started doing a um, Passover meal. Uh, not not every Easter, but a lot of them for the last, I don't know how long now, 10, maybe 15 years. Um, and so it forced me to study through some of those feasts. But what struck me remarkably is that I did not know that at the great feasts, when I started this, maybe you guys all knew this, and I'm just the, the dimwit in the room. Um, it's It was novel to me that those three great feasts that they had to do the journeying for to Jerusalem were, um, were also the times when they were to bring that first fruits tithe. That's when they were supposed to come with that tithe and present their their tithe. And that part always seemed, you know, who likes to pay a bill, right? And I know that sounds horrible, but who who, who likes to pay a bill? And it wasn't until I started studying the feasting that I realized there there is a, a I mean, just legitimately part of the tithe that they were supposed to bring to provide for the. Um, 
God's priests in the in the in the temple, uh, effectively. Uh, but particularly the feast of Passover, much of what they brought of those first fruits was also intended to be shared amongst themselves in celebration of their communion with Christ. It was truly a feast, and part of those first fruits that they brought were used as part of that feast. You come, you set away aside the rest of your lives, right? You leave your land and your property. You come, be with me here in the temple in Jerusalem, and my people, and we will enjoy the abundance that I have given you together, right? And, and it really helped me to understand something about the things that the Lord requires of us. He requires us, of us much. Matter of fact, everything. But he requires us it of us in a way that draws us into enjoyment with him. As opposed to, the word slavish sacrifice comes to mind, which is often, I think, how we perceive what we're forced to render unto the Lord. But this whole concept of Yahweh's table um, really puts a check on that and says, look, I asked you to come and enjoy fellowship with me rightly, and you chose not to do that. And so, you know, back to that analogy I was doing with my sons, right? I, I, I called you to be in relationship of goodness and blessing, of sufficiency, of refuge, of peace, of nourishment, of enjoyment. And you have chosen to be outside of that. It had a boundary. I made the boundary clear to you, the border clear to you, or the parameters clear to you. And you chose to be outside of that. You profaned my name in doing it. And you told the people that it was okay to do the same thing. Right? Verse 7. Which I can't find. Here it is. By offering polluted food upon my altar. But you say, how have we polluted you? By saying that the Lord's table may be despised, may be thought little of. Remember we had that honor in the first one, and I talked to you about how at its root it means to treat it as something weighty. And here, despised is to treat it as though it were not weighty, as as though it were insignificant. It doesn't matter how you come to the Lord. It doesn't matter how you enter into relationship with him or engage him. It's of little account. And then you, you see what it is they actually do. They, they offer polluted sacrifice or polluted food offering. And it's, you know, in those several verses that I've noted there, the people offered blind, lame, or sick sacrifices. The people offered what had been taken by violence. In other words, you get the sense that, you know, they were keeping their flocks and a wild animal showed up and mauled one of the sheep. And it was probably not good for anything anyway. Who wants to... Who wants to consume a mauled animal? I find them on my land all the time because we have coyote that hunt the land at night. And while I love venison, it has never occurred to me to pick up one of those dead deer and make a lunch out of it or a dinner out of it. And yet they would pick those same things up, half alive or half dead, I'm not sure which, and they would present those as their sacrifice to the Lord. And even goes on to say, right, in, in um, verse 8 there, at the end of verse 8, present that to your governor. Will he accept you or show you favor, says the Lord of hosts? Right? Send that to your local um, government official and see what he will do with it. 
Right? So it didn't even meet a standard of acceptance by human measures, let alone, let alone um, God's standard. Go ahead. Something that occurs to me, too, is that uh, some of the sacrifices that were brought to the temple were actually for the priests. Like, them to consume. Yet they were okay with them bringing this awful food. Like, they, they were subjecting themselves to it, really. At least some of it. Possibly. There's an interesting thread that I, I have not pulled on even in my own study, so I'm, I'm nervous to go too far. But in... Right at the end of our section here in verse 9, chapter 2, verse 9, right? And so I make you despised and abased before all the people, inasmuch as you do not keep my ways, but show partiality in your instruction. So this is super interesting, Timmy. It, it almost appears that whatever motivated the priest's actions in the midst of this, it had something to do with what they got out of it. Like, I'll show you partiality because it benefits me in some way. So I'm unclear for the reasons that you just said. Some of this was meant to be their food offering, their wealth offering, right? It's unclear to me how those two play together. But there is this little glimmer of what they did, they did for their own gains, not not for the glory of the Lord, but, but something to do with themselves. And, and I, I can't speak more to it because I just didn't pull on that thread any further than to, to notice it was curious. But you're right. It absolutely is curious. Why Why would you accept that since part of it is supposed... Matter of fact, it was mandated that they eat a part of certain sacrifices. Moses gets on Aaron's case about that early on. He's like, why didn't you eat the, this part of the sacrifice? And he's got to give a good answer or, or else. Um, so, yeah, very curious. Are they eating it? Is it, is it actually... Like, do we know that they were eating it or that they were just like, okay, this particular bit of the sacrifice for with just kind of taking whatever. You mean the blind and yeah, the blind? We'll just take whatever looks nice and then just leave the rest. I, I don't. I don't know. Not enough information for. It's a good question, but not, not enough information for me to, to be able to pull that out. We know enough to know the shenanigans were going on. Lots of shenanigans, and they just got worse, right? <laughs> we don't have any record between here and the Gospels. What we see of the of the depravity of the priesthood and the Gospels. We have nothing intervening, Malachi and that, that suggests that the situation got any better. As a matter of fact, we only have suggestions that it got much worse because then you get into the New Testament and you see what happened with that, uh, with the priesthood in the New Testament, um, ultimately rejecting and crucifying Christ. Uh, so blind, lame, sick sacrifices, um, taken by violence, um, and they offered things that didn't even meet a human standard of acceptance. If I just skip ahead, right, in uh, verse 14a, sacrifices to Yahweh, you sacrifice to Yahweh what is blemished. Um, cursed be the cheat who has a male in his flock and vows it and yet sacrifices to the Lord what is blemished. So you get a description of the polluted sacrifices there, and you can see I made that note. And I opened it up pretty significantly. These people didn't really get a lot of choice, right? They were required to bring certain offerings, and there was a prescription for what those offerings needed to be like. And so in some senses, it was pretty easy. You have to bring this, and it has to be like this. So just do it. We flip forward to the New Testament, and the Lord says, all of you, 
right? If, if you would be my disciple, you must surrender all of you. But then there's no prescription on what it is. And, and you know, the obvious implication there is if I give you a prescription, you're still going to just check the boxes and think you're fine and forget that you actually need me, right? And so my question for you is what, what things are you convinced God requires of your life? And I'll ask this from a couple different perspectives, right? Some of you might be able to grab a pen and paper right now and put a top three at least, right? If, if not more. You might be able to say, I understand that this is what God wants from me. This is what God requires from me. I understand that this is what it meant to take up my cross and follow Christ. I understand that this is what it meant to surrender myself to Christ. And, and this is what I'm giving. Right? And you would, you would be able to pencil those, maybe, you would be able to pencil those first three things down. Does anybody use pencils? Maybe I should say pen. Or type. Some of you maybe would do that, or be able to do that. I suspect for most of you, you would have to do some chewing on the eraser first, if, if you're old enough to remember that kind of metaphor, right? Right? She's laughing. She remembers it. I remember it, too. Um... You'd have to think about it for a while. <laughs> With that look on your face, actually, just kind of, hmm? <laughs> You'd have to think about it for a bit. And it would be a challenge for you to be able to list even three things that you believe the Lord requires of you. Whether it would be difficult for you to do or whether it would be easy for you to do, I'll tell you now, I think it's an exercise you should undertake. And there's a bunch of easy things there, right? How am I doing at work? How am I doing in the body of Christ? How am I doing in my relationships? Father, son, daughter, mother, husband, wife. We're all of the above. I guess it can't be all of the above. Sorry. <laughs> Separate the genders and then do all the above. I think this is an important point to be... Not, not to be overlooked here. Some of us would say, I don't offer polluted sacrifice to the Lord. I would never do that. Do you ever offer any sacrifice to the Lord? Is your worship to the Lord thoughtless worship? You know that you are called to sacrifice for the glory of the Lord. And the sacrifice is all of you, by the way. And there is no other there is no other way than to surrender all for the glory of the Lord. What are you surrendering? I don't think you should feel particularly beaten down by that question, by the way. That is not my intention. I, I just want you to kind of go, aha. You know, I hadn't thought about it that way before. I hadn't, I hadn't thought about being intentional for the glory of the Lord. And by the way, update your list. You want a, a practical one? Write what you got today. And as the Lord works through your life, update your list. Maybe some things will get removed, right? You'll go, no, that was me. That wasn't him. Some things will get added. Some things will get refined. Some things you'll start sketching verses next to because you realize you needed some help. You needed some encouragement. You needed to see that in... in Places and ways where you had failed at those sacrifices previously, the Lord was good and gracious to forgive. All right? To make a way. So, 
get your list. I'm serious. Write a list down. I have been struggling over the last couple of weeks with with some of my thinking. And I don't generally keep a journal. I, I, I write a lot of crazy notes, but these are just my study notes. I don't generally keep a journal. But I got up a few mornings ago super early, and it was very helpful to me to just write down what, what are my thoughts. What are the things that I'm thinking, and how are they intersecting with God's truth? And it was very helpful to me just, just to order my thoughts like that to concretize them in words and write them down and, and, and then go, yes, or that's a bunch of dribble, cross that out. To at least be able to go through that exercise, though. I am a Christian. Right? That might be something we all could say. What does that mean? Well, I'm trusting in Christ. For What? Abide in me. Take up your cross. Surrender all. Suffer for the glory of the Lord. And in all of those circumstances, every one of them is circumscribed by live in the peace that I bring, in the strength that I provide, so that it might make you joyful and filled with thanksgiving. How does any of that actually happen in a practical sense in our lives if we're not thinking about what we're doing for the glory of the Lord? And be careful not to limit it to, you know, I go to church, I I serve as a Sunday school teacher, or what do we call this? Growing disciples teacher. Um, yeah, be careful not to be too transactional there, right? We're not checking off an Old Testament list so that we can merit God's glory. We're, we're trying to understand what it is God has called us to do to render appropriate praise and glory, appropriate worship to the Lord. I spent way longer on that than I intended. But I don't think it's bad. Notice the heart of the people here in 13a. What a weariness this is. It's unclear to me whether the I mean, uh, Malachi is speaking or the Lord is speaking to the priests, but um, this really sounds like the statement of the people that the priests are approving of, right? But you say, what a weariness this is, and you snort at it, says the Lord of hosts. You bring what has been taken by violence or is lame or sick. Well, it's the people that are bringing that, not, not the priests. Now, the priests are accepting it and bringing it the rest of the way into the, the altar in the place of sacrifice. So it's difficult to understand who he's talking about here, but I think it fits better with the people. What a weariness this is. And you snorted it, says the Lord of hosts. You see the heart of insincere worship there. Right? You see it again in, in 9a as well. Entreat the favor of God that he may be gracious to us. It's very transactional, isn't it? I'll bring my sacrifice, whatever old sacrifice I feel like it, whatever's laying on hand, whatever the dog mauled last week that I didn't really want, I'll bring that, and that'll be good enough. This is too melodramatic and clearly isn't a, a part of Malachi, though I don't think it's far off the point. I get mauled every week. At least I feel that way after the end of a work week. And I wonder if that's all I bring into the church. The mauled Scott. 
the frustrated, disappointed, disillusioned, angry, tired, fill in the blanks, right? I wonder if I'm the one, right? If I'm supposed to be surrendered for the glory of the Lord, I often wonder if I'm not the one that's allowed to come in here as the blind, lame, sick, taken by violence, sacrifice. Well, let's go to church again. That's what we do. Can't call ourselves Christians if we don't wander into church every week. What a weariness. Um, and I say you see the heart in the two statements, what a weariness, and entreat the favor of God that he may be gracious to us. We're not interested in surrendering what we have for God. That wasn't part of our transaction. Our transaction was, and by the way, I, I love the prayer room. I love the prayer time. I cannot say enough about how much I invite all of you to join us in there. But there are often times in there that I feel nervous. We go around the room and we all do our little thanks thing, which is great. You know, I'm thankful to the Lord for, and we do a quick bloop around the room like that. And then it, it I don't want to say devolves, that sounds bad, but then it becomes a elective prayer time, right? Whoever wants to pray can pray. And so many weeks, all that you hear is, well, help this person with this and help me with that and give us this and give us that and, and make yourself, you know, mag- pour out your blessings on us here and pour out your bu- And I'm not opposed to that. But I do wish sometimes just one person in the room would stop and go, Lord, forgive us. Forgive us. And see our weakness and give us. Right? I'm not opposed to the give us part. We, we are supposed to go and ask for what we want and what we need and what we desire. He's a good father. But I just, I just wonder how often we're coming with a, a lame sacrifice. Our, our hearts are not prepared for the glory of the Lord. What we're really focused on there is just, just fix my problem, God. I mean, like, what use are you if you don't fix my problem? People offer little or nothing in 9 and in the last part of 13 there. They offer little or nothing, but they ask for much. Entreat the favor of God that he may be gracious to us. By the way, this is not unique to Malachi. Um, This is all through the Old Testament scriptures. People that uh, really offer nothing and then gripe and complain. Uh, Obey not at all. Um, Do not walk in the truth. Do not listen to or approach God the way he says to do it and then are angry when he does not provide them what they want and and go so far as to say well if that's going to be the transaction I'll have none of you Lord if you're not going to be good if you're not going to be faithful to your promise I'll have none of you With such a gift from your hand, will he show favor to any of you? Right? And the implication there is, why would, why would anybody return good for that? You have insulted me with what you've brought. You're, you're thoughtless, you're careless, you're disregarded worship. And in return, you, you want me to pour out a blessing on you. Don't, don't mishear me. You will never be able to, uh-uh, 
amount, a mass, a mass is the word I'm looking for. <laughs> Sorry, uh, a mass sufficient merit to warrant God's blessing. That's not the point. You just come obediently. And if you want a, a clue what that looks like, it looks like Psalm 51. It looks like Psalm 51. A lot of other places too, but at a minimum, it looks like Psalm 51. Or a, a verse I wrote in my, my, my it's not my Bible, uh, a verse, I, whatever this book is called, I don't call it anything, but, um, O Lord, hear. O Lord, forgive. O Lord, pay attention and act. Delay not for your own sake, O my God. Because your city and your people are called by your name from Daniel 9, 19. It's very encouraging to me. But implied in that, right, is, is my, my need to beg the Lord. And I, I have no problem with that word. I hope that word doesn't bother you. What a privilege to be able to stand before the feet or kneel before the feet of God and be given an opportunity to beg for his mercy with a clear expectation that I will get it because he said I would. Shall I accept the polluted sacrifice from your hand? 13c. And then you see God's response to insincere worship. And by the way, this response has not changed. We've tried to blunt it, uh, but it has not you would be amazed at how many scary verses are in the New Testament. Verses like, because of these things, and there's a list of very, I'll say, pedestrian sins. Because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. And it was written in one of the apostolic letters to a group of people that claimed that they were in the church. There are a lot of scary verses in the New Testament. God's response to insincere worship is no worse here in Malachi, or no better in the New Testament than it is here in Malachi. And here in Malachi, he's, he's pretty, pretty blunt about it. Verse 10, shut the doors that you might not kindle fire on my altar in vain. I would rather you not come. Shut the doors. He's talking to the priests there, right? Just stop doing this. You are heaping up wrath with insincere worship. You are heaping up wrath with thoughtless worship. Shut the doors that you might not kindle fire on my altar in vain. 10b, I have no pleasure in you. And 14a, cursed be the cheat who has an offering, vows it, and yet sacrifices, that should be to Yahweh, what is blemished. Again, not a new thought. Uh, it's also in Psalm 51, uh, but it's uh, first put there in Psalm, uh, excuse me, First uh, Samuel 15.22. Has Yahweh as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of Yahweh? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to listen than the fat of rams. 
it's worth reading those passages. So can I get somebody to pick up Matthew 7.21 for me? By the way, I'm going to ask about the next two verses, so somebody else be turning there. You want to do uh, Romans 12 and then Luke 14, 33. Right, so you see the, the importance of obeying the Lord, right? Thoughtfully approaching the Lord. What does the Lord want? You, to obey, you've got to be able to hear what's required, right? You got to know what's required. I have sought after what is required. I have pursued obedience to it. Romans 12 is nice because it actually relates this to sacrifice, which is the context that we're studying here in Malachi. Therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. Yeah. I don't often say I like the King James Version better, but I memorized that first in the King James. It's almost impossible for me to quote it in other versions, even though I've tried to memorize it. And the King James ends that with, and is your reasonable service. But when you look at the Greek that underlines it, it doesn't just mean it's like, you know, well, yeah, that, that made sense. It's the service that is right thinking. When, when faced with the reality of the truths presented us in the gospel, our service to the Lord, our, our surrendering ourselves in sacrifice to the Lord, is the only reasonable recourse. It's the right thinking one. It's the one that makes sense. It's the one that harmonizes with all that God has said and all that he is for us. We are that sacrifice, right? Again, I can't do it in another version, right? But I beseech you, is how that verse starts in the King James. I beseech you, brethren, to present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto God. The complete contrast to what we see in the offering presented here in Malachi. And that's you, and you are the sacrifice. Luke 14, 33. Cannot be my disciple if you will not give up your whole self. Your whole self. I want you to notice what the, the insincere worship, right? This is all about insincere worship or flippant worship. I want you to notice the public testimony of insincere worship. It, it, it really is a thread all the way through. I've only selected a few verses here, right? You, you get moving in this passage. Oh, that you would shut the doors that you might not kindle fire on my altar in vain. And, and while it's not in the text, it is in other places, so I'll, I'll draw your mind to it, right? The, the sense here is that I am a holy and righteous God, filled with power and glory, unapproachable, except as I deem, ordain, to allow you to come to me, right? But I, our coming to him never diminishes his glory. It just manifests his grace and his mercy toward us. But when we come with uh, insincere worship, when we come with flippant worship, we deny his glory. And so he says it would be better to shut the door, to at least make, at least make it clear that you are no longer accepted. This flippancy is not permitted to enter my presence. So shut the door. And when you fail to do that, you tell 
the world, that that's a God that will settle with whatever I want to give him. That I can approach him on my terms in my way. And you say, well, it sounds so rebellious. I get it. I get that most of you, probably all of you, don't spend time in thinking in any way, well, I'm just going to take whatever I feel like to it. But, but what is the net difference when we don't consider what it is he does require and prepare that offering for the Lord? Do, do you understand? I mean, does, that, does that work for you? I would never, I'm, I'm bad about, I got somebody else in the room I hear is worse than me at this, but I'm bad about like birthdays and anniversaries. And we, we've nixed, uh, what's that, February holiday? That, yeah, that one, right? I, I can't even remember what it's called, right? We've nixed that one. I'm like, that's a stupid one. It's a pagan holiday back originally anyway, so we're, we're not doing that one at all. I guarantee you my wife would not accept me coming home on an important day a birthday, particularly an anniversary or something like that, and going, hi, I'm, I'm home, you know, uh, and uh, on the way home, I, I stopped by the grocery store and I got you a bunch of flowers because it was convenient to me to do that on the way in, because I forgot, or the neighbor's garden, right? Although our, our flowers might be better up front, so maybe I just say, I picked them out of our, you know, the flowers that you planted out front, I picked some of those for you. <laughs> Hope you don't mind, and here you go. Hope you're hope you're honored and pleased by that, right? There, there, there's no space in human relationships. You you can't go to somebody and say, "Yeah, I, I want to show you honor and, and glory and dignity. I want to I want to magnify the benefit of the relationship we're in." And by the way, I gave no thought at all how I could honor you today, but I, I would love for you to feel really honored. That would be fantastic. I ever look at my wife like that? She call a doctor. <laughs> but you get the point, right? There's a public testimony that is that is in view here. God's name is being taken in vain. In contradiction to that, I didn't count them, but it's like the fourth or fifth commandment. Right? You shall not take my name in vain. My name will be great among the nations. And he says that over and over and over here. And I just want you to see the literary device that's being used to amplify that theme in 11, right? He starts with, at all times, my name will be great among the nations. From the sunrise to the sunset, at all times, my name shall be great. Well, how does that happen without intentionality? How does that happen without intentionality? And then he says, he defines what a right sacrifice is. And then he goes back to, my name will be great among the nations. And then picks it up again at the end of, or the middle of 14. For I am a great king, says Yahweh of hosts, and my name will be feared among the nations. And then he he concludes this whole section with the same indictment that he he gave in verse 6 about despising his name, right? You have despised my name. You have corrupted the covenant of Levi. 
and we, we had talked last week, I don't have time to redevelop it, we talked last week, here God's covenant and God's name are set side by side. There, there is no way to distinguish us remaining in covenant with the Lord from glorifying his name. And I read that section summary to you last week. I won't reread it. I want to hurry up and get to the failure in instruction and behavior of the priests here. In order to uh, set this, again, right, I'm going to keep making my cautionary statement. I don't want anybody to mishear me here. This is a unique uh, challenge that God is giving through Malachi to his priesthood, his Levitical priesthood, these particular people in this particular context. context, It would be wrong for us to try to yank this into our own context. But it nonetheless parallels an equivalent context in the New Testament where you are called the royal priesthood. See 1 Peter 2, 9 through 10. We don't have these guys anymore. We have Christ through the Holy Spirit And we are now the priesthood. He talks about the consequence of not giving weight to God's name there in chapter 2, verse 2. If you will not listen, if you will not take it to heart or later on lay it to heart. Well, what's the heart? It's not the way we feel. It's our will, right? The seat of the will, not the seat of emotion. So as I'm talking about intentionality in worship, right, this, this is the opposite. There was no intentionality. You, you did not consider what I'm saying. You are not considering the challenge. You are not considering right worship. And since you have not listened and you have not taken it to heart, you have not laid it to heart, then I will send the curse upon you and I will curse your blessings. Indeed, I have already cursed them. Such strong language, but no different. No different than anywhere else in the scriptures. Notice, notice the scope of what's going on here. The priests themselves are cursed. They are placed outside of the sphere of relationship and blessing with Christ. They they are put outside of all things that are good and right in, in Christ, in God. The priests mediate the curse to others. So they stand up and they do this ironic blessing. I'm going to flip over there. It's, it's worth you hearing. Out uh, of numbers... The Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to Aaron and his sons, saying, thus you shall bless the people of Israel. So this became the priestly blessing. This is what you should say to the people of Israel when you bless them. You shall say to them, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace so shall they put, notice this, so shall they put my name upon the people of Israel and I will bless them. So there's his name again, being made great in the way that he pours himself out in blessing upon his people. His special attention. Did you see that? May the Lord lift up his countenance upon us, right? May the Lord make his face to shine or smile upon us. Sorry, I'm falling apart. 
you know, all, all of the, the different nuances, the different facets of this that we've been looking at here in this second indictment are here in the ironic blessing. And he says, that very blessing, I am going to curse it. I am going to give you the opposite of that. And when you speak it upon people, I will have it be as though you spoke condemnation on it. Out of a broken vessel will, will flow impurity. That's what I will make you. The very function that I, I prepared you for to mediate my blessing and my grace to my people, I will reverse that entirely. And their offspring become rebuked. And you'll notice there is no priesthood, right? They pretty much went out with the temple. Your offspring are rebuked. Um, just because it's a slightly difficult passage and because it's so extreme, frankly. Verse 3, chapter 2, verse 3, Behold, I will rebuke your offspring and spread dung on your faces. The dung of your offerings, or festivals, is another way that offerings could be translated there. And most of the commentators are pretty, pretty much in agreement that that second phrase, that second clause there, the dung of your offerings, is really trying to say, do you know how much sacrifice you prepare for a festival day? This word dung is the word for the, the entrails of the sacrifice that were meant to be removed as unholy and taken outside the camp, not brought to the altar, not spread on the glory of the Lord, right? You took those, you removed them from the sacrifice, you took them outside the camp, and you burned them outside of the camp. And he's like, you're coming in here with worthless, unprepared sacrifice. You're basically throwing it up on the altar and going, well, that, that should be good enough. And then you're going, Lord, bless me and keep me. Make your face to shine upon me. And he says, I will have none of it. Not only will I not have any of it, I'm going to take the dung and I'm going to spread it on your face. It will be what you are known by. You understand that, right? To put something on somebody's face is to create identity for them. Maybe useless literary reference. Have you ever read Lord of the Flies? Were you forced to read that in, in high school? People my age were forced to read that in high school. It was mandatory reading. I had to read it like three times because I kept moving schools and I always seemed to hit it the wrong way. <laughs> but I tell you, I what did you say? Oh, I, I tell you what I did enjoy about it. It was unique to me, this concept of being able to take a persona on as a mask. It's a bunch of boys that get stranded in some place, and they're like, you know, middle class, uh, prep, preppy school type boys, right? You picture a bunch of little British guys running around in their funny little, you know, British suit, school clothes type things, right? And they start killing each other and doing wicked stuff. But they wear masks. And they put them on, and they do all this wickedness, and toward the end of the book, I don't remember how it quite resolves. I flushed my... Say again? The whole island gets on fire. But I feel like at some point in time, they end back up on the beach, and they're like, oh, my word, what have we done? And they take their masks off, and they kind of revert. All of a sudden, they feel guilty for what they did. There's repentance. What, what happened? What's in the mask? What, what the face is, is significant in our identity. And it's what the Lord is interacting with here. Right? You've come, and you've tried to change who I am and how I appear to the people and to the nations around us with flippant worship. And I will have none of it. And instead, what I will do is I will, I will make sure that you are known for what you are. You, you, will, you will be known for what's in your heart, the, the refuse of your heart.
and I will heap it upon you, is how that second phrase seems to be best understood. Not only will I spread it on your faces, I will heap it on you. And you shall be taken away with it. So shall you know that I have sent this command to you. I'm, I'm meaning he's proving himself here, right? So shall you know that I have sent this command to you that my covenant with Levi may stand, says the Lord. And then he talks about this great covenant. My covenant with him was one of life and peace, and I gave them to him. It was a covenant of fear. And again, notice this covenant and God's name. God's covenant, God's name. They're, they're not separable. It was a covenant of fear, and he feared me. He stood in awe of my name. True instruction was in his mouth, and no wrong was found in his lips. He walked with me in peace and uprightness, and he turned many from iniquity. Notice the testimony there again. For the lips of a priest should guard knowledge, and people should seek instruction from his mouth. For he is the messenger of the Lord of hosts. But you have turned aside from the way. You have caused many to stumble by your instruction. You have corrupted the covenant of Levi, says the Lord of hosts. And so I make you despised, there's that word, right, as nothing, weightless, as nothing. I make you despised and abased before all the people, inasmuch as you do not keep my ways, but show partiality in your instruction. There's a famous hymn that I think we all know. It's Just As I Am, right? Everybody know Just As I Am? I have a love-hate relationship with that verse. I hate it in that these priests could have well sung that same one. Just as you are. Just just bring whatever you've got. God doesn't care. He does care. The part I love about it is that all that was required was for them to go, I need Christ. I I need the cleansing that I can get at the temple through the altar. And I will bring the best that I have. It's not going to be perfect. It's never going to meet God's standard. But I will still bring the best that I have. I will do it intentionally. I will come intentionally before the Lord, knowing that I cannot merit his goodness or his grace, but I will I will be intentional and I will bring the best that I have. And I will trust the Lord to the rest. And that we can do. That we can do with, with full assurance because of the things that Christ accomplished and supplied. Which way do you sing that song? If if you ever sing it at all. Which way do you sing it? You see, I'm like, yeah, yeah, whatever. Roll out of bed and head to church. Or is it, I know, I can feel. That's, that's, that's a stupid sense. I can determine, right, that I, I can't merit God's goodness. But Lord, I'm bringing my best. Show me every area of my life where I am not where I could do this better and strengthen me to do it better. And please be merciful to me, a sinner. Remember me, a sinner, that I might delight in you 
and that I might magnify your name in my family, in my church, at work, in my community. James 1, 26 and 27, we'll close this out. If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God, uh, a fitting sacrifice, a right sacrifice, an unpolluted sacrifice, religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Is your worship insincere? Whether it be intentional or accidental, it's it's unclear that there's room for that. I know in my life, I, I want and I need the blessing of the Lord. The blessing of his presence, the blessing of his smile, the blessings of his gifts, the blessings of his truth, the blessings of his wisdom and direction. I want every part of him that he is willing to pour out on me. And the thought of removing myself from that or precluding myself from that because I just don't care enough to be thoughtful about my worship. It's very challenging to me. And then when I throw in the idea of wanting to see my blessing, see the blessings of the Lord poured out on my wife and my children, and uh, Linda Moody as she struggles with uh, Lyme's disease, chronic Lyme's disease, or you know, keep that was just one that came up this week, which is why I thought of it. But keep throwing in the blanks as I think about how much, how badly I want to see God's blessing poured out on those people. I cannot think of anything more repellent to me than the idea of bringing flippant worship to the Lord and removing my ability to be a, to receive his blessing and to then share that blessing. While these people aren't orphans and widows, you get the idea, I think, of the passage, right? To be able to share that blessing with the people that have need of it. I hope that you will walk out of here encouraged and not defeated. Encouraged that there is a way to approach the Lord more deliberately, more directly, and as a result, to enjoy him more fully than you have in the past. I hope that you will see this as an opportunity or an open door and not just the rod of chastisement. God was saying, and he, and he will say again in a little, little bit more, a few more pages, wait, he says, return to me. Make any effort, it seems to say, right, to return to me. And I'll return to you. I will be quick to come to you. I will be quick to supply what you do not have, what you need. And so I hope that's the sentiment you walk out of the room with. I can't go light on the parts that are hard. They're meant to be hard. The blessing is meant to be overwhelmingly good and the curse crushingly bad. Because the two of them are to together encourage us to better relationship with Christ. And so I, I, I tried to be faithful to what we read today, but please walk out of here with a, a heart full of opportunity for knowing God better and experiencing Him freshly.